may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. We'll read the first six verses. This is God's word. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorposts, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is God's word. Please, please pray with me. Father, we come to a, a passage of Scripture, your law in the Old Testament, that can seem very distant and far from us. And so we ask for understanding, we ask for reverence, spirit, we ask that you would come and work change in our hearts, even as we listen and respond to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I own you. I own you. You've heard that before? Usually maybe in a friendly game of ping pong or um, video games or your, your favorite clickbait about how your favorite commentator owns the opposition, right? Some way like that. Um, we don't talk about owning people as property today. That's different from at least in our country, a hundred of years ago, a few hundred years ago, when you could literally own a person, but slavery is still in other parts of the world in some places. We're grateful that the U.S. abolished slavery. That's a wonderful thing. However, the fact that we don't have slavery as a concept does make it hard to under, harder to understand certain truths in God's word, that God is your maker and he is your master, and it should affect the way that you live. Right. The point for today is that Jesus owns you, and that is a wonderful thing. The cute little baby in the manger grows up to be the king, as we sang, born in our hearts to reign. And I pray that God's word will encourage you today that he is your master and you want to stay with him forever. And so we are going to dive into some Old Testament case law. I know this is maybe not the most exciting part of God's word, but all of scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so what I would like us to do is first we're going to simply examine this text that we've read and say, what does it mean to talk about the slave who stays? And then ask, what does it teach us for today? So we've read the passage of the slave that stays with his master, and the rule is straightforward. It discusses how long a master can keep a Hebrew slave and then gives conditions for his release. And, and let's just talk about Israelite slavery for, for a bit, because it was very different than the horrible slave trade um, from Europe and Africa and our own country. 
Back then, the lines between servanthood and slavery were as blurry. In fact, the word the, he, the, the Hebrews used to talk about slavery could also talk about being a servant or service, even worship of God. In fact, the, the relationship between God and Israel was master to slave or master to servant. In Exodus 4, in the beginning of the book, when God is telling Moses to go confront Pharaoh, who has his people bound in slavery, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. It's the same root word for servant, slave, service. Right, that's very different from our sad past. And we tend to make a distinction today, a very big one, between slavery and freedom. Now, we talk about slavery over here where you have no rights, you're, you're treated as an animal, or over here where you're free and you can choose how you want to work and live and all those types of things. But it was, it was different back then. It, it, was not as, it was not as clear cut. doesn't mean that we want to romanticize slavery back then. There were Masters who used their power to take advantage over their slaves. It was a harsh reality. Um, but, but God put limits on the practice, and there were protections for the Israelites who found themselves in slavery. In fact, if you read the Old Testament laws, and if you were to read a little further, you would see that God is concerned about the slaves. There was special protection for women. There was consequences for beating a slave severely. And, and this passage shows there was a time limit to enslave your fellow Israelite. Let's look at some of the details. This verse 2 lays down the general principle. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. God freed Israel from captivity in Egypt to serve him, and that's a huge theme in Exodus. And so God grants freedom to his people. Therefore, slavery in Israel could not be a permanent fixture. When it came to the people of God... You could only own a slave for six years, and then the seventh, he must go free. But there's a few conditions that would stipulate the way the slave leaves. And God's law sometimes addresses those conditions and what they do here. Verses 3 and 4 present three conditions. In each one, the freed slave takes what he brings with him. So if he comes single, he leaves single. If he comes with a wife, he takes a wife. Simple enough. Now, but if he comes in single in verse four, but his master gives him a wife and they have children and it's time to leave, then the slave goes, but his master, his wife and children stay with his master. And here comes the complication. In this case, the slave has two options. The one is to leave alone and the word is literally with his back, nothing with him, and he will be free. But he must leave behind his family and leave the protection of his master's home and he will need to fend for himself in the world. Or, as in verse 5, he can voluntarily choose to stay with his master. He can waive his rights for freedom. Verse 5, if the slave plainly says, the Hebrew uses the same word for say, to say it twice, to repeat it. He plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I do not, I will not go out free. You could even translate it stronger. I do not wish to go free. Then, if he chooses that, there's a ceremony involved. The master must bring him to God. He must take him to a doorpost, and then he bores a hole in his ear with an awl. 
So what's going on here with these, this ceremony, these three things? Well, the master brings him to God. Most likely this is a, a judge or local elders who would represent the, the, the ruling of God. And, and so the slave and the master must go before some authority and swear before witnesses this permanent status change of the slave. Well, then he brings him to the doorpost. What doorpost? Most likely it's the doorpost of the master's house. Doorposts were significant parts of the house. Remember the Passover. Where was the blood spread? It was spread on the doorposts. Israel was supposed to put there, and it was representing that the whole of the household was protected. And so for the master to take the slave and, and to the doorpost and then pin his ear to the frame, what this is signif- signifying is that the slave is now permanently part of this household. He belongs to it, and he's not leaving. Of course, when he has an ear piercing, that's also a mark to remind him that he's attached to his master. Possibly there would be a little tag of ownership, maybe even like you you see with animals today. It doesn't say that, so it may not have been. Regardless, there's an physical mark that says he's now permanently connected to this house. So why would a slave do that? Why would he voluntarily give up his freedom? Let's think about his motivations for a minute. Again, voluntary slavery for us in America, that could be a hard idea to grasp. After all, we started a revolution to get away from authority. You don't want to go free? Why would you do that? Well, first I'll remember that it it was a very hard life. Hunger was a real possibility. If you were poor, if the rich wanted to take advantage of you, you often had no recourse. They could cheat you. Um, If you found a master who was kind to you, who took care of you, who provided for your physical needs, it's not a bad deal. I, I knew something, it's not the same, but I knew, I knew people who voluntarily gave up significant amounts of freedom to get clothing and pay and meals. It's called the U.S. Army. And I, I knew a guy who wanted nothing to do with the Army. But he joined because he had nowhere else to go. And when the drill sergeant saw him giving attitude, he said, why did you join the army? He said, because drill sergeant it was better than stealing. Sometimes life is hard. And if you have it good, you might want to stay. Second of all, you become a part of the master's household. You get to stay with your family, but you're also part of the household. Permanent slaves, your servants, but you are associated with a man who is much more powerful and influential than you are. So on your own, you're just a poor nobody scraping to get by. But man, I'm a slave of Boaz. I'm a servant of Joshua. I'm part of something greater than myself. And finally, love for the master. You know, the slave has come to work for this master for six years and starts to respect this man and says, you know, I wouldn't mind spending the rest of my life working to make him a success. That's not so strange. Have, have you ever worked for someone who made your job a joy? I remember my first deployment, Sergeant First Class Jessup. He's probably 10, 15 years older than the rest of us. He was kind of like a combination of a dad and an older brother, and he ran the shop. And he was cool. He let us go, but he also, you know, he was fair and he ran a tight ship. And he would tell us sometimes, hey, you know, you need to tighten this up. When I got home, I said, if someone said, would you work for this guy for the next 20 years? I'd say, sign me up. Would love to. The slave over these six years has come to love his master. And when he weighs the options, life is better in his master's house 
than if he were out on his own. And he says, I love my master, my family, and this is where I want to stay. And so this is the servant who stays. And that's the case law. Now, before we move into the modern world, let's just ask one question. What would uh, a pious Israelite reading this law learn about his relationship with God? Well, for the past 20 chapters of Exodus, God has carried out his plan to free Israelite, Israel from bondage in Egypt. Like the same word from this passage, go out free, comes up over and over again, all over the first part of the book. God frees Israel from slavery. And why is that? We've already heard it. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go free so that he may serve me. God tenderly cares for his people and promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in response, Israel is to serve God, to be a holy nation and to keep his commandments. It's, it's uh, It's not a coincidence that right before this, we get the pinnacle of these commands in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the third commandment, chapter 20, verse 3, says this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep, who love me and keep my commandments. So this third commandment is about how Israel is to forsake all, all other gods and serve their master. And then the next chapter in this law, Israel gets this picture of an ideal master, one who provides and cares for them, who brings them into his household and puts his mark on them. God rescued them, brought them out of Egypt to serve him. And now after this time in the desert, Israel is supposed to say, I love my master. I want to serve him. I do not wish to leave him. Well, what about you? Well, in the New Testament, you find out that Jesus owns you. And that is a wonderful thing. And he does own you. Does that make you bristle at all? Does that make you uncomfortable? Our society has an anti-authority allergy. Any kind of appeal to authority is seen as a power play, illegitimate, oppressive, as we were talking about this morning, right? The narrative is, I am the one who has complete freedom over my life. No one gets to tell me what to do. There is no one greater or more important who can make demands on my life without my agreement. That's, that's true freedom. That's what we're told. But in Scripture, it says that Jesus is your master. Now, the the New Testament has many beautiful words to uh, describe the relationship between Jesus and his church and you. And it's not just one as master, servant, master, slave. He is he is the husband, the bride. He is our high priest. He's our older brother. He's divine from where we get all of our life. He's he's the good shepherd who lays down his, his life. These are all beautiful pictures. But one of the most common is master. The apostles Paul, Peter, and James, his brother, Jesus' brother, James, all call themselves slaves or bondservants of Christ. This passage here in the Old Testament can give you a healthy appreciation of how to relate to your master. And there are points of contact between master and slave in this passage in Exodus and our relationship to Jesus as master. And let's look at three. And first of all, you are marked by your master. And the slave got his ear pierced and bore the mark that showed he belonged to his master's house. 
Now, you are marked with the sign and seal of baptism. Baptism is the covenant sign that you are part of God's family. When you were baptized, it signified the new life you have in Jesus, that, that you are identified with the visible church and Jesus' life, and you are part of Jesus' people. Just like when the hammer and all pin the slave to the door and says, this guy stays here. He's part of this household. So the water marks you off as one who belongs to God. Now, you might say, wait a second, ear piercings, baptism, not sure I see the connection here. And there are different ways that scripture relates to each other. There's one where there's a direct fulfillment. There's a prophecy or a ritual that is directly fulfilled and you can draw a straight line. So the Day of Atonement and Jesus, in, when he goes into the heavens and he makes atonement for us. That's not what's, that's not what's happening here. Um, pierced ears do not directly prophesy about Jesus' death and our baptism. What you do see, though, is an analogy. It's an example. Just like the ear piercing meant the slave was part of the household and permanently marked as the master's slave, so our baptism has a meaning. You are marked as part of Jesus' household. Which means that baptism is not just a nice ritual, it has a meaning. It's, it's why it's actually valuable for you to think about your baptism and what it signifies. The, per, the Puritans used to say that one of the means of grace is to improve on your baptism, to reflect that, yes, Christ has marked me off. Think what it means um, that Jesus has marked. By the way, we've talked about, we've sung about um, a master who has come and given himself, who received marks so that we could be his own. But what does it mean that you've been marked by, by a master? Well, say to young people, uh, it's both an invitation and it's a warning. When you were raised in the church and you were marked with baptism, it means you've received the sign of King Jesus. He says, you are part of my people. Your baptism invites you to wholly commit your life to the king. And you respond to that baptism when you confess Christ as Lord and you become a full member of the church. And then and then you receive the Lord's Supper. It's it's like in some way you step in and say, yes, I love my master and I do not wish to go free. That's that's the invitation but there's also a heightened danger if, if you don't respond, if you ignore that mark and you run away, you have a greater responsibility because you have been raised in the church and experienced the truth and the beauty of the gospel. So I ask you today, do you realize that you've been marked by your master? For all of us, that should affect the way we live. That leads to the second that you love your master and you don't want to go elsewhere. In other words, to serve someone else. Very early on in the church, there was a bishop named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. Can you imagine that? You're, get, you're getting direct teaching from an apostle. And he was a beloved leader in Smyrna, in Asia Minor, now Turkey. And a series of persecutions broke out in 150 A.D. around there. And Christians were being martyred and blamed for various things. And the rabble wanted to cut off the head and kill the church leader. Now, at this point, Polycarp was an old man. And so his people hid him in a farmhouse outside of the city. But eventually he was found and arrested. And he was brought into the arena. And there, the proconsul begged with Polycarp to renounce Jesus, his master, he said, Polycarp, you have such a good reputation. Many in the city love you. 
you were old. Just, just renounce the atheists. Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all the various gods. And Polycarp said that. I can do that. Away with the atheists. And by that, he meant the people who don't believe in the true God. And the proconsul said, you know what I mean. Renounce Jesus. And this is what he said. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Here is a dear old saint who served his Lord for 86 years, and at the end of his life, at the threat of his life, he doesn't say, well, this is a convenient excuse to finally get away from this guy, this Jesus person. He says, no, I love my master. He's been faithful to me all these years. How could I desert him now? I love my master. I do not wish to go free. Now, Christians, we follow Jesus regardless of what the world around us thinks. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And that means walking to a different drum. It means that we are bound to the law of Christ, as the apostle says. Apostle Paul says. And we are to actively compare our lives to his word, regardless of what the world says. Just, just think about the implications for that in the Christian worldview and the way we live compared to what's going on today. Think about sexuality, where we see ourselves as set apart as holy. And so we flee from pornography and adultery. Think about the way that we view work. Work is not a drudgery or something to be avoided or, or just a means to an end to get what we want, but it's, it's a calling it's a blessing, and, and that changes the way we view our money because God is master, our, our wealth is not our own. We, we tithe, we're generous. We view rest differently. We take the Lord's Day seriously. We view re- vacation and retirement differently. We don't try to create a heaven on earth, but it's a, it's a time for refreshment, not to numb our souls and to pass the time. And Of course, we could say much more, but you, you see how the priorities of being a slave to Christ change and shape the way we live. Do we do this perfectly? Of course not. That's why we have our time of confession. That's why we are in constant need of God's grace. But the fact of being a Christian is that if you follow Christ, you will serve your master, even if imperfectly. And the rhythms of our lives will look different than those around us. Otherwise, we're not slaves of Jesus. There was a cost to Polycarp when he followed Jesus, and there's one for you too. So a question is, where do you give up something to serve your master? And what does it cost? Maybe it's something this week you've been saying, yes, I've given this up or I'm giving this up. I'm, I'm walking in a way that is hard and I'm doing it because I love Jesus. You can praise God for that. Second of all, where do you need to bow the knee and change your life in order to reflect that you are a servant of King Jesus? Now, I'll tell you, as I've been thinking about this idea that I belong to Jesus, that I am devoted to him, there have been times when I've been fighting sin and I I want to go towards that old nature. And one of the most effective ways, there's many tools that God's given us, but say, no, I belong to Christ. I'm made for something different. And that claiming that has been very helpful to me. So you do not want to go anywhere else. You want to cling to Jesus and finally... You have the honor of serving him forever. Verse 6 of the text says, He shall be his slave forever, and God, who owns you, gives you the incredible honor of spending the rest of your life serving him. 
Where Jesus is the king and he is good. He is enthroned in heaven right now and he is building an eternal kingdom. And you have the honor of serving that king. Think about it. Apart from Jesus, let's just say you you have a, a, a carefree life and you can do whatever you want. You have the freedom that the world promises you. No one can hold you back. You can have your heart's desire. At the end of it all, what do you have? 80, maybe, short years of a small little life that's done. But as slaves of Jesus, you get to participate in building his kingdom, which will literally last forever. That changes the way that you look at life. Right? When um, I was in seminary, it changes your motivation. When I was in seminary, there was a standard pledge that we had to write in our blue books. I don't know, maybe they have finally transitioned to actually writing essays on on a laptop, I don't know. But we had to write by hand, and and there was this very legalese, you know, I, I... promise that I have not plagiarized or taken out of context or this. It's just this, this long phrase that you'd have. But one of my seminary professors didn't do that. He just had a pledge that said, I belong to Jesus. I realize that if I cheat, I am acting against my nature. I promise that I have, to the best of my ability, answered these questions truthfully and not brought dishonor. To my Lord in his holy name. And you see that that changes the way when you look, realize that what you're doing lasts forever. That motivation changes the way that you live. Well, Christians, today Jesus looks at you and he says, I own you. You belong to me. And you couldn't have a better master. There is no complete freedom The truth is you will always serve someone else. Why not God's Messiah who rescued you and is the most patient and loving master you could have? Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I, the body and soul, both in life and death and not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to be instructed, we come to be encouraged, we come to be shaped. We ask that the power of your gospel would not go and have no effect on our lives, but we would be changed people. And so by your grace, through your word, through your community and your church, would you be shaping us to see ourselves more and more as slaves of Jesus and that we would see the freedom that it brings. For we pray this. In his name, amen. This time we will prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, the feast that our